welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are going to talk about a literary figure who has been stalking this show for years, just lurking in the shadows of our research. And that person is Lord Byron. Now, I bet you thought I was going to say Harriet Beecher Stowe, but... I did. Well, don't worry. Don't worry, because we're (laughs) going to get to her, right? We're going to get to Harriet later in this very episode. But first, we want to talk about the OG bad lad, perhaps? The bad lad supreme? (laughs) The poet, adventurer, politician, and peer of the realm, George Gordon Byron. Uh, I like his full name. Yeah, <laughs> and I think some I people called him Georgie. <laughs> immediately just warmed to him. I was oh, like, you did? oh, yeah, George. George Gordon. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so Lord Byron is regarded as one of the leading figures of the Romantic movement. He was a massive celebrity in his day, and he was hugely influential. He was hugely influential over many of the writers that we cover on this show, Bonnets at Dawn. And it's well known that he is the man that dared Mary Shelley to write a ghost story. And that is something that we discussed. I Saying that makes it... We discovered that, guys. Like, <laughs> we, d- we discovered that in season yes. three, episode nine with Dr. Fiona Sampson. And his influence on the Bronte sisters is also widely acknowledged they read him as teenagers and Heathcliff and Rochester are like pretty strong Byronic figures right yeah like yeah like they're that's what prime they prime yeah. Byronic heroes yeah we also know that Jane Austen read Byron and she makes two references to his works one is in my favorite book Persuasion and Anne is discussing poetry with Captain Benwick And the other is in a letter to her sister Cassandra dated March 5th, 1814, that reads, Do not be angry with me for beginning another letter to you. I have read the Corsair, which is by Byron, mended my petticoat and have nothing else to do. Why are you mad, Cassandra? (laughs) Doesn't say what she thinks about it. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I read it. Um, what I actually find really interesting about uh, Austin referencing Byron is that we know that Austin was always dropping those pop culture references in her work. Mm-hmm. And um, she was contemporaries with Lord Byron. Sadly, we don't know for sure if Byron ever read Jane Austen, but his wife, Annabella Milbank, remember that name because it's going to come up again later. Uh, His wife read Pride and Prejudice in 1813, and she said that it was a very superior work, the most probable fiction I have ever read. I like to think that Byron's response to Austen was like Tom Hanks's response to Austen in You've Got Mail. (laughs) I'm not going to explain it any further. I just, that's what I'm seeing. I'm going to cast young Tom Hanks as Lord Byron. It's set Mm -hmm. in New York, and he's like... persuasion no it's pride and prejudice he reads anyway it's not a perfect i um it's not i bet he he would read persuasion because i bet he would like to see the like his name mentioned (laughs) yeah he's 
He's Drake like, just skips to that bit. Yeah, he's probably like, oh, it's she mentions the, the Corsair. The Corsair? What does she say? What does she say? And yeah, what's like, oh, say? it's not. Yeah. <laughs> we know that he doesn't make any mention of her in like his letters, and he really mm-hmm. likes to mention people, which is something that we've found out over the course of yep. taping this show over the past few years. Um, for instance, we have this one letter uh, to his publisher, John Murray. John Murray, another guy, just like stalking this show. He published everyone, FYI. Um, This letter dated 1814. Byron says that he has been reading Waverly by Sir Walter Scott and that it is the best and most interesting novel I have read since I don't know when. I like it as much as I hate Patronage, which is by Mariah Edgeworth, and The Wanderer by Frances Burney, and all the feminine trash of the last four months. Byron. (laughs) No, wait, George, we're done. We're through. I'm out. So I do think it's possible that Austin was part of the feminine trash mm-hmm. section Probably. of uh, Byron's library. Uh, Byron also had a lot of hot takes for his contemporaries. Uh, we know that he coined the phrase Malvi Southey for the poet Robert Southey. He also called William Wordsworth Turdsworth. The best one. Um, Great one. We learned this fairly recently when we attended the Lit House's conference. Uh, shout out to our pal Poppy from Wordsworth Grasmere, who will be coming up later on the season. And another literary connection that we are fascinated with, with regards to Byron, is his connection to Harriet Beecher Stowe. Now, we are going to talk about that a little bit later. But first, we've got an interview. While we were attending the Lit Homes conference, we met with Simon Brown, who is the curator at Lord Byron's home, Newstead Abbey in Nottinghamshire. And we had such a great chat with Simon that we knew we just wanted to get him on the show to tell us a bit of the history of Newstead Abbey and its connection to Lord Byron. Because frankly, other than thinking he was a little bratty boy, I we didn't know a lot, did we? No, 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 not very much. Well, Newstead Abbey, it's a... It, the fundamentals it's a historic house uh, in nottinghamshire so it's right in the heart of england in the middle of sherwood forest so sherwood forest is known Perfect. globally anyway of course because of robin hood uh, and the character of friar tuck in the robin hood stories is reputedly based on one of the monks of newstead abbey oh um, nice that, that's what that's what we say anyway but because mm-hmm. it's so shrouded in legend anyway that's <laughs> that's one of those things but yeah it's just north of the city of nottingham so i live in nottingham mm-hmm. and i go to newstead from there so it's right in the heart of Sherwood forest right next to the river lean so mm-hmm. in the center of england basically um and it is most famous as the home of lord byron it was his ancestral home um so he was the sixth lord byron he was the sixth man to have that title and newstead abbey uh, was part of his inheritance so he inherited it along with the title as his home um the house itself was built as a, um, a priory it was it was a religious house built in the 12th century um so it was a bit like a monastery but um there were fundamental differences so it weren't there weren't monks that lived there they were called canons so they were more like um ordained priests that lived communally okay. so about 25 ish of these people would live together at newstead abbey from the 12th century um, and and it, it carried on that way up until the 16th century when Henry VIII closed down all religious houses in, in the country and seized them for the crown. 
and then it was sold on to the first Byron family member to to own there, and he converted it into a house. So that was the point at which the Byron family moved in. And it's like proper gothic as well. Proper. We've we've just like finished our <laughs> Northanger Abbey read along. <laughs> and what's funny is like in Northanger Abbey, of course, Catherine's like really upset that it's it's like modernized and it's not very gothic. And yeah. in a lot of the um, annotated editions of <clears throat> Northanger Abbey, you'll see illustrations of Newstead Abbey. They're like, this is the one that's actually that she's thinking of. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really um, unique place. And, and it's that knowledge of the fact that you're in this beautiful natural landscape, which, you know, is undeniable. But the, the nature of this huge Gothic building in the centre of that, when you feel like you're in the middle of the forest, um, adds to that. And then the knowledge of the history that's been there, you know, 800 years of lived history there, especially associated with such a unique figure as Lord Byron. All those things add up to a sense of place that I haven't, I mean, I, it's my job to say it's unique, isn't it? But, right. <laughs> you know, it is, you know, <laughs> you don't know it anywhere. You don't feel that anywhere else. And I think that's the thing that um, makes people come back because even if people have no interest in Byron or no knowledge, they don't know about him, people still feel that, that sense of place. Mm-hmm. Now, you told me a really interesting story about Byron, like, just hearing about inheriting all of this wealth, Newstead Abbey. Like, when did he become Lord Byron? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, he grew up in Aberdeen. So he was born in 1788. And uh, he didn't know his father, um, who died at sea. Well, no, he died in France, actually. Um so he didn't see him, basically. Baron didn't see his father, but he, he spent a lot of his career in the Navy and at sea. So he lived with his mother, who was a Scottish heiress in Aberdeen. Um, so he went to school there. And, you know, he was a bad lad. You know, he was always in trouble and all that. He was kind of a tearaway. Um, and, you know, all those kind of nascent things that we saw in adulthood were there even as a child. Mm-hmm. Um so he wasn't mega rich, but he was in a quite a comfortable middle-class family because his mother was an heiress in, in Aberdeenshire, um, which is in an area of Aberdeen, which is known for being very bleak. I don't know if you know Aberdeen. I mean, it's beautiful, but it is, it is bleak. You know, it's, um, you know, it's very, um, it's, it's, it's quite isolated where he lived. Mm-hmm. So he went to school there. And at the age of 10, in 1798, he um, was called to the headmaster's office, which happened often because <laughs> um, he was he was often in trouble but i mean what was different was when he arrived at the headmaster's office the headmaster stood up and invited him to sit down at his desk and he gave him a glass of wine um and informed him that he just received a letter saying that his great uncle the fifth lord byron had just died and that he was now the sixth lord byron and inherited a title and uh, Newstead Abbey and also lots of land around Newstead and in Rochdale as well in other parts of England so that's how he found out mm-hmm. and it was all a complete shock to him he had no idea he didn't see any of that coming so yeah they went down they went south they went to Newstead and when there's a story that they arrived at the gate uh, to Newstead and uh, Baron's mother said to the gatekeeper she said who could you tell me who the lord is here and he said well it was lord Byron and we're told that it's gone to his great nephew but none of us have seen him and she like unveiled him said here he is <laughs> you know and um that kind of talent for mystification 
It's the flair for the dramatic. Yes. She was just very dramatic about the whole thing. And um, yeah, yeah, he immediately uh, went and saw. And, and what they saw was Newstead Abbey as a ruin. It was almost completely ruined. Mm. Um, so as I say, he was, uh, George Gordon became the sixth Lord Byron. So his great uncle, the fifth Lord Byron, was and Hugh was a real character. <laughs> you know, the, the whole ancestry, everything about his ancestry informs the man himself. You can see it. But the, the fifth Lord Byron basically squandered his entire fortune. So when, mm. when he inherited Newstead, it was thriving. There was a huge art collection there, which included works by Titian, by Rembrandt, I think. You know, a huge art collection, really beautiful, well-kept. He was a man of learning. Um, and the fifth Lord Byron squandered that completely. And he died penniless. The only thing he couldn't sell legally was Newstead. So he sold everything else. He sold the art collection. He oh, sold all the livestock. We have a catalogue of the sale and it includes fixtures and fittings, doorknobs. Oh my gosh. Furniture, mirrors. He sold everything he could to pay off his debts. So he died alone at Newstead um, with his, uh, his servant, uh, uh, Joe Murray. Who and who might be a name who's come up in in what you may have read about Byron, but um, he was servant to the fifth lord and he stayed there for for Lord Byron the poet. So he let Newstead go to a complete ruin, and that's what Byron found when he first went there at the age of ten. When did did he occupy Newstead Abbey? Yeah, he he moved in. Um, he came of age at the age of twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, so he'd been to Cambridge University already. Mm-hmm. Even though I think now I'm a bit hazy on the details, but he, he kind of took up residence after L- Lord Grey moved out. He took up residence on a kind of semi-permanent basis anyway mm-hmm. in order to oversee any kind of improvements to the house uh, because he could afford to refurbish six rooms, basically. Okay. Um, even though there's about 40 in the house. So he had to pick very carefully which rooms he refurbished. Mm-hmm. And those ones he did refurbish, he... he um, put to a really great standard, you know, that were really beautiful and luxurious. So we have records in the collection of things he bought, correspondence that he wrote from there describing the surroundings. Um, so that's what's allowed us to re- re-display them quite faithfully. Ooh, did he have good taste or was he kind of outlandish? <laughs> uh, you know what? It was good. It was good, actually, I must say. <laughs> I suppose we're, we're talking by 19th century standards, but his colours... There's a, there was a lot of deep red, a lot of yellow, and a lot of green. They're the kind okay. of colours that he chose. Um, very busy patterns. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, yeah, there was the flamboyance there that we we would that you and I would expect mm-hmm. from uh, from Byron. Really, there was a lot of flamboyance about it. Uh, a lot of rich uh, tapestry. Well, not tapestries. Sorry, a lot of textiles, thick curtains, carpets. Carpets mm-hmm. were quite um, uh, quite rare Mm -hmm. uh, in that period and he he made sure he had carpets so um yeah they were they were they were to a good standard really is there anything in there that's like your favorite or is there any room or item in the collection that doesn't have to be associated with byron but what is your what is your favorite oh it's difficult it's every curator's worst nightmare to be asked that question um (laughs) I know. I ask it all the time. <laughs> We've got five and a half thousand objects. You know, it's difficult. But I, oh, that is a lot. Yeah. 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 
funnily enough, actually, we have a huge, we have a lot of views of Newstead. We have a lot of paintings, a lot of uh, etchings and things. And there's one painting that's massive. It's, it measures two metres by three metres that hangs on the North Stair at Newstead. It's by um, John Bell of York from 1866. So it's actually from after Byron. But um, that's my favourite painting, probably, because it's huge. I like huge mm-hmm. artworks. You know, I'm not a, <laughs> not a connoisseur, but I like them to be big. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the one that comes closest to capturing Newstead. Not just most images that you'll have seen will be of the building, mm-hmm. you know, and it has the west front and it has the house. So we kind of look at the building. But this painting is taken from the other side of the lake, mm-hmm. so it, it pictures Newstead, but nestled in this huge, beautiful landscape mm-hmm. um, that it sits in. And that that to me is incredibly important, as I've already said in talking about the sense of place that Newstead has. And uh, that's, that painting is probably closest uh, to capturing that as a, as, a, as a work of art, to capturing that sense of place, because it's not just about the building, it's about the landscape it sits in and, and how how it all feels Gothic. Yeah. And it all feels like a natural landscape. And the way that Byron wrote about it was about the landscape and the way the building sits in it, not just the house. So that's probably my favourite painting. But, I mean, uh, in terms of, a room, one of the rooms at Newstead is the library, uh, which wasn't Byron's library, it was Thomas Wildman's library who, who bought Newstead from Byron. Um, and I would say that's probably my favourite room because that's the one where we display the majority of the collection of Byron's personal objects Ooh. that tell the story of his life. So we te- in that room we tell the story of his life from birth to death, even though it was only kind of a relatively short period in the middle of his life that he lived at Newstead. Mm-hmm. Um so that's my favourite room. It's probably because it's the one that feels most like a museum, which is my background. So that's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's where yeah. I feel uh, most comfortable, you know. What um, objects have you got in there? Or do you have a favourite object out of those those few Byron ones? Yeah, I mean, we have first editions of most of, of the majority of his books. I think pretty much all of them, which is a huge, huge yeah. significant thing to have. So they're really significant. Visually speaking, we, we have a helmet which he had made um, towards the end of his life in Italy. Uh, you might have seen an image of it. Uh, it's ridiculous, ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's like a Greek battle helmet with a massive plume, mm-hmm. um, like a, a Roman legionary's helmet almost. And he had that made in Italy just before he died. Um, he, he was living in Italy and he decided to go to Greece to support the Greeks in their war of independence from the Ottoman Empire. And um, he had this helmet made. Uh, and it's not practical. It's the least practical <laughs> <laughs> head, head protection you'll ever see. But that wasn't his consideration. It was about being seen and flamboyant and showing off his uh, his presence, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had that made to take over to Greece. And that's where he died. He died of a fever. And um, very suddenly, you know, at the age of 36, he had two doctors in the room with him, neither of whom spoke the same language as each other or English. So there were three people in the room who, you know, it was chaos. So his his funeral was quite, um, was very quickly arranged. Mm -hmm. And it was in a very simple wooden box, but this helmet was on top of the box. Oh, gosh. So at his funeral, his helmet was on top of the coffin um, in, in an otherwise very simple wooden coffin. So it's a really significant object. And I think that's 
one of the one of the ones where if people come to see Newstead and they know about Byron and they're interested in Byron, that's one of the things that people really kind of want to see. Mm-hmm. That is great that you have that too. Yes. yes, because especially, you know, when I mentioned the circumstances in which he died, it was chaotic and mm-hmm. the house was filled with pe- with sycophants and with people who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, his servants and people who come over from Italy, people who joined him in Greece, um, people who were, who were all on his payroll. So yeah. suddenly chaos, you know. So some of his money went missing out of his desk drawer. Some mm-hmm. of his objects went missing. So suddenly everyone was um, trying to claim bits of him. So yeah. objects relating to him have scattered all over Europe or everywhere. And a lot in the States as well, as mm-hmm. you probably be aware. So, um, so you know, collectors have them and they, they change hands that way. So anything really with any kind of personal connection to Byron. I mean, at his when he died... His servant Tita Falchieri, who um, I've probably pronounced wrong, but <laughs> um, who uh, went over with him from Venice, actually cut off a lock of his hair. It's um, not something that's pertinent to our collection at all because we don't have any of it. But um, mm-hmm. when he first became p- famous, and suddenly because his work, his book was so scandalous, it, there was there was a lot of sex in his work. Mm-hmm in a very scandalous way that put women in positions of power. And, and um, uh, so a lot of the people, a lot of the women that were reading his work were writing to him, mm-hmm. you know, writing who wanted some sort of connection with him. And um, a lot of them were sending him uh, locks of their hair and he would send him, he would send them, you know, what he would describe as locks of his hair. But we do know that a lot of it came from his dog. No. So he was cutting, he was cutting hair off the dog, and then sending that to women, saying it was his. So um, <laughs> there was a lot of that. There was um, there is quite a famous story of Lady Caroline Lamb. Oh yeah. Who, where you probably know now that <laughs> Lady Caroline Lamb, who essentially stalked him, and she, mm-hmm. you know, she um, was crazy about about him basically they had a, quite a short uh, short-lived affair but yeah she sent him some pubic hair mm-hmm. and, you know all, these, these things quickly pass into legend don't they but a lot of that uh, a lot of that hair is in the collection that um john murray the publisher okay who, who was Byron, byron's publisher and they're still operating um, yeah they published everyone yes yes john murray, exactly, yes. really <laughs> And, and from the same building as well, I've been yeah. to their, they're very gem, you know, they were very generous with me. Um, when I first started, I contacted them and asked if I could go see them. And this, they still operate out of the same building. I was told that um, John Murray's office was the first street in London to have a pavement because so many people were going there um, on foot to see Byron or to see this place of pilgrimage to do with Byron and it was the first place in London in Mayfair to to build a payment specifically for people to walk on rather than oh. for carriages coming past I, I don't can believe that I, that actually sounds pretty good though actually yeah it does sound good and I'm sure okay. I mean hopefully if anyone's listening to this and can tell me that would be amazing because it's part of my job to sift out because stories are great and we tell the stories but it'd be right. good to know the truth between them you know but yeah, yeah. that's one of the things but that building you know that one of the more famous things that happened with Byron was after he died, he was working on his memoirs mm-hmm. and um, the people that remained um, 
Hobhouse, you, you know, his best friend Hobhouse, um, his sister Augusta, and John Murray, his publisher, and various others decided to burn them, decided to burn his memoirs because they were so scandalous. And that happened in the fireplace at John Murray's, which remains there. So I went into there and into the parlour, and that that was. And I, as soon as I said it, I knew that I was saying the same thing that every single visitor said, <laughs> which was, "Oh my God, that's the fireplace!" And and, and, <laughs> and there's a portrait of Byron above that fireplace, um, along with portraits of Walter Scott and everything. And um, it's a beautiful place, and and um, they were very kind to me to show me it because it's a private business still. Um, but yes, yes, they said, yes, that is the fireplace that <laughs> the memoirs are burning. Are there any sort of um, whispers about what were in those memoirs? Yeah, well, sure. what Byron decided was he, he was sending, um, he was sending uh, things that he wrote to Thomas More, mm-hmm. a friend in, in England, uh, because he'd fallen out with John Murray before he died. And he decided that he wanted Thomas More to publish these memoirs and bits of poetry that he'd written as well. So they were essentially in his legal ownership, in Thomas More's legal ownership. So he was one of the people that um, were part of this group of people in 1824 um, who made the decision to burn them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what he did was write a biography. So he wrote a biography of Byron, having had access to to the memoirs. but uh, so we can only speculate as to how much he sanitized them. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a copy of that of that biography with uh, annotations by Hobhouse, oh, cool. which is very illuminating. I think that's in that might be in John Murray's archive, which is held in Edinburgh. Oh, um, very cool. Yeah, and and Fiona McCarthy had access to that, and you know she talks about it quite a bit in the, in her biography. Um, which is the one I would recommend to everyone, Life and Legend by Fiona McCarthy. Hobhouse's annotations kind of on that biography kind of get as, I think, closest to the truth. Right. But also what they were trying to hide essentially was any evidence of homosexuality, because mm-hmm. it was clear he was bisexual, he was having relationships mm-hmm. with men and women. That would have got him into huge trouble. Yeah. Um, it was still a hanging offence, was homosexuality in England at that time. So it's probably evidence of that, possibly evidence of um, relationships with boys as well, with like underage, um, with young boys. So Mm -hmm. that's a possible. So that would obviously have been, by any standards, scandalous, as well as um, the relationship he was having with his half-sister. Right. Um, So I think all those people wanted to protect his reputation it seems likely that all of those things were being depicted by Byron in his, in his memoirs. And he just mm-hmm. didn't care. He didn't give a shit by that point. Right. To kind of phrase, you know, he, he was saying, he was saying in letters that he didn't care what got published because he'd left the country in disgrace by then anyway. So mm-hmm. he didn't care. Um, so that was an attempt to protect his reputation. Bear in mind, he had a daughter, Ada, mm-hmm. um, who survived. Um, he had another daughter, Allegra, who died at the age of five. Um, but yeah, the, the the feeling was to protect his reputation and to protect um, uh, Ada. But I, I suppose what we're doing, what my work entails now at Newstead is um, a wider reinterpretation of the house. So yeah. when I started, we put in a, a new accessible gallery 
um, which you know we got funding from national government to to refurbish two rooms to tell the story of Newstead and the story of Byron as a timeline, but with a remit on access to make it as accessible as possible for every single person. So that's physical access, that's kind of, um, philosophical access. You know, it, it's my what motivates me is that everybody who comes feels welcome. And, you know, because I didn't feel welcome in historic houses when I grew up. I, I didn't think it was for people like me, however you would define that. It wasn't something that I did unless I was on holiday or whatever with school. So I want people to feel welcome at Newstead and to feel engaged, to feel that we want people to know about this amazing history and amazing story and amazing place that we have. So we put in a new gallery that had a specific remit of doing that. We had funding to do that, and, and we're now using the learning from that and every all the feedback from that to reinterpret the rest of the house. Okay. So that, that's what I'm working on at the moment. And there's so there's 40 rooms. Yeah. How many do you have like <laughs> available for people to yeah. see? Because I'm assuming quite a few of those are offices or storage or. Yeah, about half of them are open to the public. Okay, that's still a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a lot of bedrooms. Um, yeah. You know, and the the building has changed structurally so much since Byron uh, has lived there. He he mm -hmm. sold Newstead to Thomas Wildman, who um, was who was at school with Byron at Harrow, but he had come into a lot. He'd inherited a lot of money. His father owned sugar plantations in Jamaica. Okay. So he inherited lots of money. He also inherited the plantations and therefore the profits. Mm -hmm. um, so he completely. When I said that, Bar that Newstead was a ruin when Byron inherited it, it had been partially refurbished by him, but Thomas Wildman completely structurally, top to bottom, um, tidied it up, <laughs> basically, gotcha. including putting gotcha. it in and all sorts. So, um, but of course, you know, it's, it's significant that that money came directly from plantations. So that was mm -hmm. that was generated through um, slave labour, through people who'd been um, mm -hmm. kidnapped from Africa as part of the triangular slave trade. Um, so all that money was generated in that way. So we have quite, we have a responsibility at Newstead to tell that story because yeah. a huge Afro-Caribbean population in Nottingham um, that we've worked with in, in various ways, that I've worked with in different work, uh, different jobs. And um, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about the fact that in all historic houses in this country have some sort of link, but with Newstead it's particularly mm -hmm. strong because all of that money came, all of Thomas Wilder's money came from that. I'm really interested in what I can do appropriately mm -hmm. um, to discuss that, because it's all part of the sense of place of, of Newstead Abbey, you know, it's all part of it. So, yeah. and, 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 and I suppose one of the things that we want to come, one of the strong parts of our interpretation plan is to make sure people know that Newstead has this amazing story but it's only it's continuing. It hasn't stopped. It's never stopped. It's never stopped being an amazing place of stories. There are stories I could tell you from three months ago, you know, <laughs> that, are, yeah. that are compelling. You know, because of all the people that are still that still affect and are affected by this place, that's been the case for eight hundred years and continues. So, I'm interested in all of it, and that, yeah. that's what we're that's what we're doing. And we are back. Now, I want to thank Simon for coming on the show. And I also 
want to mention one thing that was left on the cutting room floor. I had asked Simon about the various ways that we could support Newstead during the shutdown. And like many of the curators that I've been in touch with uh, for this series, he encouraged us to check out Newstead Abbey online and also on social media. But he also brought up volunteering, which I highly, highly encourage. The National Trust, Chotton House, Newstead Abbey, Gaskell House all rely on volunteers to bring a ton of different skills to the table. So you could work with the public, you could organize events, garden, or even just, you know, catalog rare books. There's so many oh, things. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, there's so many things you could do. So um, yeah, check out their websites, look into volunteering. I think it would be an awesome experience. If you guys are up in Nottingham, I mean, my God, come on, go volunteer at Newstead. I think one of the things that I really loved about what Simon was saying as well is about how important it is to make stuff like that accessible. And I think Mm -hmm. that's definitely like a huge motivation for us doing the show and certainly something I think about a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that it was making me think a lot about what Dr. Amber Poliot was saying in the first episode of this season, just about how um, exploring the literary homes of people that you're less familiar with can help you contextualize those that you are familiar with. And I think for mm-hmm. us, that's that's Newstead Abbey, right? Because yeah. Byron comes up so much. And so this is someone that maybe we wouldn't typically talk about on the show. I think like we've had discussions like, should we even include Byron? Should we do a Byron episode? But he just comes up again and again and again with Harriet Beecher Stowe of the Bronzes with Austin. And so, yeah, just really excited to not just talk about it on the phone or talk about it in the Lake District. Right. You know, would be cool to go. So it's definitely something that we've got coming up in the future. And yeah, just really excited to go and see that great house because that looks beautiful. That looks like a great house. I um, have my eye (laughs) on a dress from Loud Bodies that I would like to wear in a photo shoot in front of Newstead Abbey. We can do that. I've got an iPhone. Yeah. Gothic. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait. It's going to just Maybe go on a book cover. Maybe we could do a day cover. out. Ah, oh, be great. On like a little bonnet's day out. They should offer that as a thing. Take your gothic like book cover cover photo right here. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that'll be a bonnet's at dawn service that we offer at New yeah. Abbey. <laughs> I I'll take those pictures. <laughs> be great. So another place that we are looking forward to visiting is... Harriet Beecher Stowe's home in Cincinnati. Now, I actually had plans to go there this month, but of course that was canceled. Um, After haunting this show for so, so long, I do think that it's time we do a proper series on her. But uh, this is not that serious. (laughs) This is not that serious. But soon. (laughs) Soon. Someday. (laughs) Someday we're going to get into it. Um, This is like the perfect opportunity for us to get into one of my favorite literary scandals, which is the HBS Byron controversy. Now, Hannah and I both have some alcohol here. Would you like to share what you've got? Sorry, I held it too close to my face and I could smell it. Uh, I have some really cheap gin that a tight-fisted guest left at our house at New Year's and we Mm. 
have just been saving to give to other guests because we didn't want to drink it. But we've been in lockdown for a couple of months now, so so <laughs> getting getting desperate, getting getting ready to drink it. Now, uh, of course, since we are talking about HBS, we are going to do a shot in her honor. I have um, some cheap whiskey. So keeping keeping on theme, not breaking out the good stuff, I guess. Oh, my gosh. I feel like Harriet Beecher Stowe would be proud of that. Yeah, I think she'd be fine with it. You know what? Okay. We're being we're using what's available. If you you're ready? at home listening, pause it. We're going to count to three and then we're all going to take a shot. Everyone. Yeah. I'm speaking and- to you listening to this. Harriet Beecher Stowe, take a shot. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. That was a big one. It was a big shot. That was a big shot for me, too. It keeps giving. Oh, I think think it's rude to bring this into someone's house and leave it. How dare. So now that I've recovered, we're going to get into it. We're going to dip into Byron's love life. I do want to just say that I'm not a Byron expert, but I've been reading some things, some things that were actually um, recommended to me by Simon. So first up, we've got Emily Brand's new book on Byron and actually the whole Byron family, which is really good and it's available now. And also um, another biography on Byron by Fiona McCarthy, which Simon says that he uses and references all Mm. of the time and highly recommends it. I've also downloaded a million articles on JSTOR and watched that Nick Deere Byron movie starring Johnny Lee Miller, which is available on Amazon Prime. And I, I recommend it. I recommend like the first episode and like half of the second. It just kind of falls apart, but yeah, it's uh, it's decent. It's okay. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. So, let's go back to the year 1812. Lord Byron was 26 years old and had published the first two cantos of Child Harold's Pilgrimage. He's uber famous. He's the darling of Regency England, and he's got all these admirers. And he enters into an affair with Lady Caroline Lamb, who deserves her own episode, honestly. Not only is she the woman that coins the phrase mad, bad and dangerous to know. Great writing. But she also she also wrote a gothic novel inspired by Byron, which I think is great. Um, Caroline is a lot. She is extra, (laughs) (laughs) to put it kindly. Um, But so is he. Uh, Of course, their relationship is the talk of the town and it's all very lady gaga like bad romance so it's a whole toxic mess is lady caroline lamb like the what's the the word begin proto caroline calloway <laughs> i think a caroline little bit caroline yes. would date byron i mean that in like a positive yes. like totally like i'm just gonna do it yes yeah Okay. She's dramatic. She's yeah. yeah. She's I, yeah. You had she it likes first. being the talk of the town. <laughs> yeah. There's this whole incident actually after like they break up and they're still corresponding for a while and then like she's in Ireland and she comes back 
And he's like, I'm not interested in you anymore. And he publicly insults her at a party. And then she like breaks a wine glass and like Mm -hmm. is like, I'm going to slash my wrist. Oh, yeah. And like later on in a letter, he's like, it all got very Macbeth in there. (laughs) But I bet he liked that, right? Yeah, I think it was just like it was the drama, like it Mm kind of like her extra craziness matched his extra craziness. But, you know, that's too that's too much to last forever. Right. That's going to that's going to go bad. Hot while it is. Yeah. And then very cold and wet. Very cold. So after Byron breaks it off with Caroline Lamb, he becomes involved with another married woman. And this one is Augusta Lee, who just happens to be his half sister. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? I know. Did he know? Oh, yes. What? They knew. They Which didn't... of their parents do they share? Their dad. Oh, no. They didn't grow up together. That but doesn't still. matter. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Yeah, no, they know. They know that they're related. Oh. It's, yeah, okay. I know. It, it happens. All right, George. Um, yeah. In 1814, Augusta gave birth to Elizabeth Medora Lee. Um, and it's very likely that Byron is the father. I feel like I'm in shock. <laughs> oh, between that and the shot, it's just it's going to get really interesting up in here. Um, later on that year, Byron decides to propose to Caroline Lamb's cousin, Annabella Milbank. So just that hashtag be. messy. <laughs> messy. Oh, no. So he had been like sort of corresponding with Annabella Milbank for some time, it seems like he was just sort of keeping her on the back burner for a potential wife. Oh, I feel um, that. <laughs> <laughs> That's <yeah>. a mood. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? <laughs> She's like this very sensible gal. She's from a good family. So she can kind of help reform mm-hmm. his reputation a bit, right? Like, okay, well, Manage he must not be household. so bad if he likes her, right? And then... Also, um, most importantly, she was wealthy, so she could provide a little bit of cash infusion. Um, The pair were obviously wildly mismatched. She was super religious. She's highly educated. Um, Byron liked to call her the princess of parallelograms due to the fact that she just loves math so much. And, (laughs) of course, their daughter, Augusta... Ada Byron um, is also known as Ada Lovelace. And she, of course, would go on to become a brilliant mathematician. Um, It'll be no shock to you to learn that Lord and Lady Byron had a very short and very rocky marriage. Yeah, shocking. He was drinking, gambling, having affairs. Um, He also had this obsession with his sister, you know, Um, Mm. by the way. I I literally saw this this morning on Reddit relationships. There was a headline that read, "I don't know if the relationship that my that my significant other has with his sister is normal, and if I can deal with it for the rest of my life." And I was just like, "Annabella, oh my gosh, um, can you send me the link to that? No, yes. send me the screen. I like it when you send me the screenshots, the screenshots of the Reddit relationships. Yeah, yeah, it's okay, great. Thank you. 
Uh, it got so bad between Annabella and Byron that she like hires a doctor to secretly assess whether or not like his behavior is normal, whether or not he's gone mad. She's just like, I don't know what's going on with this guy. Like what is happening? I don't know what I'm living in. Mm-hmm. Um, which Byron is, you know, not happy about that. At one point, he suggests that she go and stay with her family for a couple of months. And while she's there, she sends word that she wants a separation. And Byron is like, hey, what gives? That's weird. (laughs) And then calls up Augusta Lee to talk to Annabella. Like, hey, will you go talk to my wife and see if she will come back to me? Um, but Annabella's not having it. And like on top of all of this, Caroline Lamb, who is her cousin, is writing her letters about Byron. And it's just like it's truly, truly messy. So not only do Annabella's parents support the separation, but so do like all of the lawyers and the courts. Yeah. And kind of like think about what an extraordinary situation that is. Like you have a peer of the, the realm and his wife has left him mm-hmm. with their young daughter like and people are like, yeah, this is you yeah, should yeah. get a, <laughs> you should be divorced, yeah. Um, and she also pretty much she retains custody of her daughter as well. Um, there's of course tons of rumors that are swirling around the case, but Lady Byron is like publicly silent, and in fact, I think there's a bunch of times where even Augusta is like trying to get out of. Lady Byron, like what the problem is exactly. And like, she's not even responding to Augusta. She's just having her lawyer send like, like private correspondence. And they're like, listen, it's in everyone's best interest to just let it go. Um, Byron ends up leaving the country in disgrace, but he does play up the victim card. Um, He disparages his ex in poems. He calls her cold and calculating. He repeatedly tells like all of his powerful friends that he has no idea why his wife left him. No clue. In 1818, Lord Byron meets this woman named Teresa, the Contessa Guccioli. And then in 1868, years after Lord Byron and Lady Byron have died, Teresa publishes this book called My Recollections of Lord Byron, in which she paints him as a victim of this cold and narrow-minded wife this man that was cruelly separated from his child. And that's where Harriet Beecher steps in. Should we take another shot? We should take another shot. Is that regular sized? Is this a big shot glass? That is a normal sized shot glass. My dietician told me not to drink spirits because it's bad for your gut flora. So this one's Mm. for you, Helen. Cheers. (laughs) Mmm. Oh, it's not better the second time. So Harriet had befriended Annabella in 1853 on her first trip to England. And when they met again in 1856, Annabella told her details surrounding her split with Byron. In 1869, Harriet published The True Story of Lady Byron's Life in the Atlantic as a response to the Guccioli memoir. Now, Harriet's intentions were to defend her friend, but it also gave her the opportunity to highlight some of the women's rights issues that she felt strongly about, including 
abuse, lack of civil rights for married women, their inability to seek divorce, and she hoped that the article would be the Uncle Tom's Cabin of Women's Sexual Slavery. Boom. Yeah, I mean, great tagline. Yeah. (laughs) So Byron's sexuality and rumoured relationship, rumoured relationship with his sister... Right, underlined. Yeah, we're pretty much open secrets by this point. But then Harriet just goes and puts in print. So there is a difference, right? When something is like an open secret and when someone is spelling something out because then that person is the person that is saying it. So this causes an enormous amount of public backlash. The Atlantic lost thousands of subscribers. She was accused of fabricating details. She was called jealous. She was called hysterical. The press, particularly us Brits, condemned her and it was a complete disaster. Yeah. Sorry. Some people say that it ruined her career. Um, She does sort of bounce back with her next book. But but yeah, it's it's a bad scene. I mean, am I surprised Um, that a woman's career was damaged by publicly slamming and shaming an abusive man? No. I mean, tale as old as time, right? Kel surprise. <laughs> well, you know, what's the, I think about this scandal a lot, or I have thought about the scandal a lot in the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, With like the Me Too movement. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that I find most interesting about this case is that a large portion of the critics actually believe Lady Byron's charges against Byron like, that's not the issue. They're like, yeah, <laughs> this was not an ideal marriage. Like, mm-hmm. we can absolutely recognize that. The issue is that Harriet, a woman, a respectable woman, a minister's wife, yeah. has quote unquote stained herself, which is, I believe, what Blackwood Magazine said, stained herself by revealing these things. Respectable women have no business mm-hmm. talking about homosexuality or incest or sodomy all of the things that are in this article and were going on in this marriage and the fact that she put it in black and white is a big deal here and it's just interesting because like everyone knew about it but that silence was necessary to uphold a reputation of a great man there is an awesome article called opening the open secret the stowe byron controversy by susan mcpherson and um, I think this particular quote, I just was like underlining so much, but mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is the quote that sort of like nailed down why I was so drawn to this controversy. Want to want to read that for us, Hannah? Do I? For Stowe, Lady Byron remained silent to prevent the ruin of Byron's half-sister. The world may finally forgive a man of genius anything, but for a woman there is no mercy and no redemption. Women's silence over men's sexual conduct is central to Stowe's text. We fearlessly ask, she writes, if any wife who discovers an incestuous relationship would wish to proclaim it forthwith or would wish quietly to separate from your husband and to cover the crime from the eye of man. Here, women's silence is necessary for the protection of women from the eye of man, that is, from a patriarchal culture which prohibits women from speaking out about sexual matters. 
Stowe suggests that expectations of conformity to female propriety enable instances of male sexual violence within the family to be passed over in silence. It is the self-abnegation of the wife to the husband, she writes, drawing on John Stuart Mill, which is the special crown of womanhood. When a husband humiliates his wife and treats her as a brute, she still accepts all with meek, unquestioning, uncomplaining devotion. Yeah. Or at least publicly does. That's the only yeah, thing publicly. I would say. It's, yeah. I have got to give HBS some serious props here because the article nearly destroys her career, right? But mm-hmm. instead of just going away quietly and just writing about something else, she's like, no, I'm going to expand this article into a book and I'm going to title it Lady Byron Vindicated, which is just banger of a title yeah i think lady byron vindicated is a great band name so oh i play bass guitar well i i don't play it i have a bass guitar <laughs> i can like pluck a string um if anyone would like to join my band lady byron vindicated please i will join that band okay for good. sure i have no musical talent but you can hum. i can try yeah okay you can get some bongos or something you know <laughs> try something out bongos <laughs> That's the first thing you thought of. So yeah, in, in this book, it's just like she's like a lawyer, basically. And she builds this case. But the case is not just against Byron. She starts building a case against like the entire literary establishment that is staying silent and looking the other way. Like, okay, you enabled this and mm-hmm. you enabled this. And mm-hmm. like she's looking at the whole structure. And that I was like, oh. Just like the Me Too okay. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, it's down interesting. The yeah. I think um I think this book as well is the book that she fell out with George Eliot about. Yes, because it is. yeah, because she was writing it and George Eliot was like, mm, I don't know, and I have she, to say, not surprised George Eliot was not like, yeah, <laughs> let's go. So, reading all of this, I mean, I don't think her goal was to cancel Byron. Essentially, mm-hmm. um. I think that what she was trying to do was, you know, first of all, make a point about women's rights. Yeah. Encouraging you to take a look at the total picture. And that is something that I really appreciate about Newstead Abbey and like what Simon is doing, not turning a blind eye to the fact that it was money from plantations, money from slavery that went into renovating that house, that sort of like open acknowledgement that he has going on in the interpretation there at Newstead Abbey. It's part of the history and it should be examined. And so I'm saying that too about Byron and like our look at him on this show, like Byron's written some beautiful stuff, but I do think we need to take a look at the good with the bad. And as well, I think something that was really telling was both of our reactions to our stay at Ruskin's house, right? everyone at Ruskin's house lovely Ruskin's house beautiful the location beautiful you open a biography on Ruskin and the first thing it says is that he has a problematic relationship with a young child a child you go into his house and I don't I don't remember seeing it anywhere so yeah and it speaks volumes and it actually I felt more uncomfortable with the fact that it was being glossed over than I would Mm -hmm. have if it had been addressed because I remember right. when they did that recent C.S. Lewis 
exhibition and the curators were saying like how how do you present someone like C.S. Lewis who is like such a part of our culture and such like an important figure but then how do you give that context and how do you have the whole conversation and like Mm -hmm. bring that information in and yeah exactly what you're saying it's like Harriet Beecher Stowe isn't saying like burn the books like get rid of him but you can't pretend the stuff didn't happen it's just important yeah it's just important that it's acknowledged so I'm just going to ask you guys to go out there read Lady Byron Vindicated it is on Project Gutenberg I read like a few pages before bed every night it's great um, also catch us at the Riv next Tuesday <laughs> where we will be playing all the literary inspired hits. Oh God, um, like a Harry Potter band. Jeez. You know what? I, I don't, yeah. You don't know what that is. Well, listen, no. Harry and the Potters, <laughs> I was big into them when I was a child. <laughs> it, it's all songs about 18th, 19th and 20th century women writers. Come on. Yeah. The first song in the album yeah. starts, Hello, I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. <laughs> <laughs> Great band. Great band. Um, while you're on the information super highway, oh, you should, I know, right? Very sexy. That's how they referred to it when I was in middle school, by the way. Did they feel very old. Lower, lower their voices and say it really slowly. Now that you're on the information super highway. Yes. Oh, yeah, you're right. I know. <laughs> it's inappropriate. It's <laughs> You can find Newstead Abbey on the internet at newsteadabbey.org.uk and also Newstead underscore Abbey on Twitter. They are also on Instagram and I highly recommend you check out that feed because their gardens are amazing. And you guys know I love a good plant picture. Um, We, of course, are also on the information super highway and uh, you can find us where? You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com and you can join our Facebook group by searching Bonnets at Dawn and agreeing to those pesky terms and conditions. And if you're so inclined, maybe you can drop us a little review wherever you listen to this show and let us know whether or not you think the shots made a difference to the quality (laughs) of the content. Because I feel yes, like please. standards are slipping the longer this episode oh, wow. goes, truly. Okay, on that note, I guess I'll just take another shot. Shall we? See it? Shall we see us out? Yeah, why not? I mean, you've got to finish up that cheap gym, I can't right? finish it in this, but maybe I'll make Sam have some. It feels also like Byron would have wanted it this way. To you, HBS and Georgie boy. Oh, and also to Simon for being an awesome guest yeah, this week okay, as well. Yeah, this yeah. is for you, so this shot's for you. <laughs> Cheers. Mm-mm. It Ooh. never gets any better.